Okay, every year in the month of August, what we do at TCPC is revisit our vision statement um, as a way of reminding us at the beginning of a new year, and this, this kind of serves like the beginning of the new year. Uh, the church uh, calendar in many ways feels like it follows the school calendar more than the regular calendar. Um, and so in many ways, this week and uh, I guess even more so next week, and then even more so after Labor Day weekend, it will feel like the beginning of a new year around here. And what we do in August is we return to our vision statement, which we adopted five years ago, and, um, and recommit ourselves uh, to, to, to what we say we exist um, for around here. We, we say, we have said all along, that we do not want the glory of Christ and the good of the bluegrass to merely be a catchy um, tagline on letterhead or, or, or website, but we want it to inform and form everything that we do around here. So that's why we revisit it every year. And, and every year I come at it from a, uh, from, from a different angle. And this year I want to do that. Um, I want to revisit our vision by looking at the Great Commission. Um, the structure of the famous passage that I just read is essentially our vision statement. We say that we exist for the glory of Christ, which I'm calling verse 18, and the good of the bluegrass, which next week um, we will call verses 19 and 20. The glory of Christ and the good of the bluegrass is simply a, a particularized, a contextual way of us saying that we exist for the Great Commission around here. Um, so today, we're going to consider, once again, the fact that we exist for the glory of Christ by considering verse 18. Just verse 18 tonight. Uh, one verse of the Great Commission. And here's, here's how I'm going to approach it. I'm going to ask two questions from verse 18. I want to ask, what is Jesus claiming and what is Jesus demanding? One is going to be a theological answer. What is Jesus claiming here? And one is going to be a practical application question. What is he demanding? So let's look at that together. What is Jesus claiming here in verse 18? Let me read again this very audacious statement from Jesus. He came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now what is he claiming in that? Well, first let me define authority. I think it's probably pretty important. Um, I would say in our modern language, uh, a word that um, might be more helpful to think of uh, rather than authority is the word ownership. Um, of course authority means that Jesus is in charge. Of course that's true. Um, but not in a sense, not in the sense that he is uh, in charge like a manager or a boss of something that's some, that is owned by someone else. When he speaks of authority, he has in mind ownership. He's saying, I own heaven and earth. Um, I am sovereign over heaven and earth. Notice he does say all authority. If we talk about authority as ownership, what he is saying is that he owns everything. And notice he says heaven and earth. That is in scriptures when you see heaven and earth, it's a very common refrain. That's talking about heaven being the invisible spiritual realm that we cannot see and, and earth being the uh, physical observable realm that we can see, the universe. So this is expansive. Jesus is saying, I own heaven and earth. 
Abraham Kuyper, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of existence over which the risen Christ does not declare mine. I own it. Now, there's something else interesting here which will help us appreciate the significance of his claim. Jesus says, and if you're familiar with this passage, maybe, maybe um, you've wondered um, the strange wording here before. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, the, the obvious question to that is, didn't he already have it? Um, hasn't Jesus eternally owned all things? And if not, well, who owned it before him? This is a very strange statement by Jesus, but it's not an isolated one. He talks this way often, Matthew 11, 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. John 3, 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 13, 3, knowing, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. John 17, 2, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. So over and over, Jesus speaks of the Father giving to him all things, authority. But hasn't Jesus always owned all things? Isn't that foundational to Trinitarian doctrine? Well, there's an important nuance to appreciate here, and it's going to help us appreciate just how um, amazing this claim is. Let's do, if, you, if you'll bear with me, let's just do some theology uh, very briefly with this, just precise theology here. Um, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, is eternal. Uh, to say something different would be heresy. Um, he is eternal, forever existing, no beginning, no end, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, uh, creator of all things, sustainer of all things, sovereign of all things. He is God eternal. So it is right to say that the Son of God has eternal ownership over all things. However, the holy mystery, I would even maybe say it, the scandalous mystery of Christianity of the gospel is this thing called the incarnation. That the eternal Son of God became flesh. Became being the operative word there. That the second person of the Trinity took upon himself the nature of man. And when we in Christianity say the nature of man, we actually mean the nature of man. Real man. Fully human as you are fully human. He is not Part God, part man. He's fully God, fully man. Born of a woman, real flesh, real blood, a real historical person, as human as you are human. That is not his eternal nature. That is his incarnate nature. And so the Son of God is eternal, while the God-man incarnate Jesus of Nazareth was conceived conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, as the Creed says. And it is this person, this real person, this God-man, who was given ownership over all things in heaven and earth. And this is what is being emphasized when this historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, again and again and again, says that they, all authority, all things have been given unto him. So, um, just for a moment, let the doctrine take your breath away because it's truly breathtaking. A man owns heaven and earth. A real first century Palestinian 
person owns all things now. Now, it is this mysterious nuance that led us to nuance our vision statement the way we did. It is, of course, not wrong in any way to say that we exist for the glory of God. I will never correct you for saying that. It's true. There's nothing wrong with saying that we exist for the glory of God. One person uh, even got, uh, the few of you have tattooed the vision statement on your uh, bodies, which is cool. Uh, it's great. Uh, but one person got the glory of God and the good of the bluegrass. I have not corrected that person, and they're not here, so don't worry about it. It's okay. It's okay if you mess up your tat. But we specify Christ. We specify Christ because the Bible specifies Christ is the point I'm making. In fact, the Father has specified Christ. God has authority over all things and God has entrusted that authority to the incarnate Son of God, the man, the human nature, Jesus Christ. Likewise, all things exist for the glory of God, but the glory of God is fully revealed in the glory of the incarnate Jesus Christ. The greatest mystery of existence is that existence happens to be all about this one man, this person, Jesus Christ. This man reigns supreme as authority and glory of all of heaven and earth. So that's what he's claiming here. That's his claim. Now, of course, that is a bold claim to make, but is a claim he vindicated by his resurrection up from the grave. He arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He reigns. He reigns forever. He reigns. He reigns forever. He reigns. He reigns forever. And on and on, Justin went because it's worthy to go on and on. He reigns forever. He proved his claims by his resurrection. But that's the theology and it's important. But what I really want to get at this evening and where I want to spend most of my time are the implications of that claim. That is where I want us to really press in. What is Jesus claiming here? All authority, all ownership of heaven and earth. Second question, what is Jesus demanding in that? Now to ask what Jesus is demanding seems to be an unanswerable question because there's no imperative here. Uh, there's no command. It's just a statement, it's just a fact. Now next week we will look at the explicit command of therefore go and make disciples. But even before we get to the explicit demand, there is for us an implicit demand in this statement. And it's going to call us to recommit ourselves as a community to exist for the glory of Christ. And the demand of his claim is found in the dilemma of his claim. Let me explain what I mean there. Here's the dilemma to Jesus Christ saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Here's the dilemma with that. Does it look like Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth? Does it look like to you that the earth belongs to Jesus, that Jesus owns this place? The answer, if we're honest, is no. When we watch the news or uh, scroll through our social media feed, the last conclusion that we would make is that Jesus reigns. Now we just listen to them sing over and over again, Jesus reigns, Jesus reigns, Jesus reigns, Jesus reigns. But when I look at the news, that's the last thing I see. Does Jesus own Charlottesville last week? Does Jesus own 
our Western University campuses that are starting back this week for another year of telling the next generation that Jesus himself and his claims are silly myths for the unlearned. Does Jesus own those places? Does Jesus own North Korea? Does Jesus own Syria? Call me cynical if you'd like, but it sure doesn't look like Jesus owns heaven and earth. So which is it? Is it his claim in Matthew 28? Or is it the very real circumstances of this depraved world? Well, the answer is that Jesus does own all things, but it's tough to see. I'll illustrate it with what is going to happen uh, tomorrow around 2.30. Uh, surely you didn't think you'd get through a sermon without an eclipse illustration, right? You know, it's just every preacher in America has been hard at work trying to work the eclipse into their sermon. Here's my, here's my attempt. It's probably lame, but got to say something about it. Here we go. All right, so, um, so tomorrow something amazing is going to happen. The sun will be shining, but it will not look like it is shining. Nothing will be different, and yet everything will be different. It will be darkness all around you, but that uh, 27 million degree star in the sky will still be there shining as bright as it does every single day day. It's not that the sun is gone. It's that the moon is blocking the sun. This is a very good way to understand the fall of creation. Jesus rules and he reigns supreme over all things as the sun reigns supreme over our sky. But the fall is like an eclipse of his ownership blocking out his reign, casting this dark, evil shadow over all of creation. But don't be fooled by the shadow Jesus reigns. Just like you must not be fooled tomorrow afternoon, it will seem like the sun is not shining. It will seem like the sun is not as bright as it should be. But if you look at the sun without your eclipse glasses, you are going to burn your retinas. Because the sun is there and the sun reigns. And so it is for the risen Lord Jesus. Do not be fooled by the darkness and the shadows that is all around us. Jesus reigns even if it doesn't look like he reigns. And all who deny his reign will one day face the brilliant brightness of his authority. When he returns and the veil of the fall is removed and... His authority floods creation as the waters cover the sea. But today, we live beneath the shadow of the fall. And that is why creation does not seem to belong to him. Which brings us to the demand of his verse. Jesus gathers his disciples and he says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But it doesn't look like all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So the point, disciple of Jesus Christ, who recognizes and confesses his reign, the point is what are you going to do about it? The call that we see here is that we are to bring the reign of Christ to bear upon this creation that rightfully belongs to him. We are to subdue what is his for him. Jesus says elsewhere, I am the light of the world. Think 
the sun illustration. I am the light of the world. But he also says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. So make the connection. We are ambassadors of his light. We are ambassadors of his reign here on earth. And so his demand, when he says everything belongs to me, and we look around and says, no, it doesn't look like that. Well, he is saying implicitly, go make it look that way. His demand is to subdue what rightfully belongs to him. And that is what ultimately brings his glory. When we say that we exist for the glory of Christ, we have to ask, what does that even mean? At the end of the day, what does that mean to be a community that exists for the glory of Christ? Well, we have to understand the connection between the glory of Christ and the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ is simply a fact. It is an undeniable truth. He reigns. He owns all things. It's true. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to Jesus. The glory of Christ, though, shines when that fact breaks through the darkness. The glory of Christ is what takes place when that reality of His authority and ownership is realized. When His authority, which is hidden by the fall, becomes visible, it emanates His glory. Or say it like this, the glory of Christ is recognized when the authority of Christ is realized. Wherever He reigns, His glory shines. So, if we say that we exist for the glory of Christ, then what we are truly saying is that we exist to establish the authority of Christ because the light of His glory emanates from the reign of His authority. Now, next week, we are going to apply this concept to the world. That's where He ultimately takes it, right? Do you, um, he says, therefore... I own all things, therefore go and make disciples of the nations. Does that not add more depth and meaning to, to the Great Commission now? Do you understand more what he's saying? He's, he takes his disciples and says, look, I own heaven and earth. It doesn't look like it, so I want you to go and subdue it and make it look like it. That's what he's saying in the Great Commission. I want the nations back. I own them. I want you to get them back for me. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to... We're going to we're going to look at that next week. But before we talk about the nations in general and next week, the bluegrass specifically being subdued for Christ's glory, we need to talk about our own lives this week. So here is the simple application question for you this evening. Very simple question, very difficult answer. And it's this, or maybe very difficult implications to the answer. Here's the question. Who owns you? Who has authority over you? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That has global implications, but it starts with particular implications. It starts with you, brother and sister. Jesus owns you. Whether it looks like he owns you or not, Jesus owns you. Now, do you know what Christian conversion is? giving Jesus what belongs to him. That's what it means to give your life to Jesus, to follow Jesus. Of course, it saves us. Yes, salvation. But it saves us because what it is, is it is a decision to relent and bow to his authority rather than the insane attempt to contend against his authority. You won't win that. 
So if you are, um, if you're here this evening and you're not a follower of Jesus, um, would you allow me to extend to you an unconventional invitation that you maybe have probably never heard it worded this way before, but I think is a very um, important and helpful way to invite you into this thing we call Christianity, to invite you to Jesus. Um, here would be, here, in light of everything I'm saying here, here would be my invitation. Instead of raging against the authority of Jesus in a dispute that you cannot win, give to Jesus what rightfully belongs to Him, your life. Surrender to the authority of Jesus. Now, what you will find is something very interesting. And every Christian can tell you they have found this. What you will find is something very unexpected. In submission, you will be set free. Because it is, if it is true, if it is true that Jesus is your rightful owner, then you will only flourish under his ownership. And surely you have noticed that. Have you noticed how bad of an owner you are of your life? It's because you're not the owner of your life. You will flourish under his ownership. But to those of us who have surrendered to Jesus, I, I still want to pose the same question and press it down. If we're going to say we exist for the glory of Christ, we've got to ask this question. Same question, Christian. Who owns you? Now, your answer is, un if you're a follower of Jesus, your answer is unashamedly Jesus. But I fear your life is like mine, <laughs> where too often there is a divide between that admission of his authority and the application of his authority. And what I want to say to us this week is that before there is any talk about reaching the nations for Jesus, before there is any talk of subduing the culture for Christ, of changing the bluegrass for Christ, it starts at home. It starts with me. And surprisingly, what I have discovered is that that internal application is more difficult than the external application. I know a lot of culture warriors a lot of people who are zealous for evangelism and missions and changing the culture and winning the war or whatever, and their life are a mess, is a mess. And it just screams at us, before we subdue the world, how about we just start at home? A couple weeks ago, I said that I would love for our congregation to recalibrate ourselves around the feet of Jesus this year, that we would not allow the busyness of ministry. There is so much that's taken place at this church over the past few years, and it's so exciting that we would not allow the busyness of ministry to distract us from the call to sit and listen. Well, do you know what ultimately the call to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to his teaching is? It is a call to surrender. In that passage with Mary and Martha, what he's saying is, Martha is up, busy, and distracted. Mary is surrendered. To sit and listen is to surrender to his authority. So again, I ask you, who owns you? Not what your lips would say to that question, but what your life is saying to that question. When Jesus says all authority belongs to him, we must not ask first, does it look like that in the world? We must ask first, does it look like that in my life? So, Who's in charge of your schedule? You or Jesus? Who's in charge of your money? You or Jesus? Who is in charge of your sexuality? You or Jesus? 
Who's in charge of your tongue? The words that come out of your mouth, you or Jesus? Who is in charge of your imaginations, your daydreams? Who is in charge of your private life when nobody is watching you? Who is in charge of this school year? Who is in charge of your marriage? Who is in charge of your parenting? Who is in charge of your appetites, you or Jesus? Who is in charge of your vocation, your calling? Who has authority over you, you or Jesus? The answer to all of those questions is explicit in our verse. It could not be more clear. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I think that includes you. So the question of ownership has already been answered. That question's been answered. Those questions I asked have been answered. The answer is Jesus. But my question for us is, does it look like Jesus owns us? Or more specifically, maybe a better way to think of application here is, where does it not look like Jesus owns us? Right? Where, does it, where in your life does it look like Jesus is not in charge? Survey your life in community. Join a community group if you're not in one. In your community, survey your life. Where are you raging against the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ? And then I want you to apologize to your owner and repent and relent. And what you will find is that things are actually really good under his reign. His authority is so much better than your authority. His yoke is easy. Now it's a yoke. He has you around the neck, but it's easy. His burden is light. Now it's a burden. You're a slave. He's your master, but it's light. His lordship is love. It's lordship but it's love. And he has proven it so. What's interesting about this statement, I'm done. What's interesting about this statement in verse 19 is that it comes right on the heels of the one who says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. It comes right after he has just laid down all authority in heaven and earth. The one who owns us in an ultimate sense serves us in an ultimate way as the master dies to rescue his subjects. Brothers and sisters, if you doubt the goodness of his authority, if you wonder whether it is safe for you to surrender, if you fear to give up control, you need only to look at his cross. That, that fateful three-hour eclipse where the authority of heaven and earth became the suffering servant of heaven and earth. Who owns you? The answer could not be more clear. Jesus owns you. But I want you to know that answer is good because his ownership is good. Let me pray. Lord, you own us. And as we come now to your sacrament, I pray that you would remind us that that ownership is good. I pray as we come uh, to communion that this would be a recommitment of ourselves to you. Lord, subdue our hearts for your glory. Before we talk about the bluegrass, before we talk about the nations, we ask that you would come and rule and reign in our lives. For Christ's glory alone we pray. Amen.